think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Hear, O oh peoples, all of you. Listen, O oh earth and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Ah, if that just doesn't put you in a lovely mood to dive into the Bible, I'm not sure what will. So yes, we are here digging into how you think through your Bible, and I am here today to tell you that judgment comes against sin. All of it. You may be asking yourself, all of what? All of judgment? All of sin? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. All right, last week we, uh, we got through a bunch of minor prophets. This week we're going to get through four more, and then we will be out of the minor prophets for a little while because we're going to try to stick chronologically as much as we can. So we were looking, so let's see, we did um, Hosea. My brain just stopped working completely. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. That covers us in an area from... 850-ish, so mid-9th century, going all the way back to the reign of Jehoshaphat, basically. But it brings us all the way into the end of the 8th century. So you're talking about towards the end of the time of Israel, towards its destruction. So this week, we're going to look at Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, and you're going to see a recurring theme here. So this is going to bring us again into the end of the 8th, towards the middle of the 7th century, really even towards the end of the 7th century. So this covers a lot of overlap. So we're going all the way from, again, the time of the destruction of Samaria and the loss of the northern kingdom of Israel, all the way down towards the, the latter days of the kingdom of Judah. So let's dive in because there's a lot going on here, believe it or not. And some of the stuff you actually know, even if you're not a student of the Minor Prophets, if you've just been hanging around churches. But I want you to see if you can pick up on the uh, consistent message that's going on here. So Micah chapter 1, Israel and Judah judge. Now this is key because Micah is our, our earliest of this little segment of prophets. So again, late 8th century, 730s to 710s, 10-ish, somewhere in that ballpark. That little section I just read you is from Micah 1-2. If you continue, behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. If you remember going back through Kings and Chronicles, the high places, the idolatrous altars, the idolatrous worship of not just Israel, but in Judah. Remember as we went through this, we had decent kings in Judah, but we never really had great kings in Judah. So we continued, um, my, uh, my benchmarks for these guys are guys like Asa and Jehoshaphat, guys who, while they were good, they followed and walked in the ways of their father David, but they didn't remove the high places. I mean, you have to get all the way down into like Josiah almost 300 years later before you get the removal of the high places, the removal of the idolatrous shrines. You have to get 200 years after the split of the kingdom when you get down towards Hezekiah, where you're actually reinstituting the Passover, reinstituting proper temple worship, where we're actually doing the things that God has called the people to do. This is demonstrating, again, the patience in uh, preserving work of God. But remember, 
that preserving work is precise, that God is long-suffering, but he is not just willy-nilly going through the world. Micah's a good example of this. 200 years after the split of the kingdom, all this idolatry, all of this sin, and there is a message of judgment coming. So chapter 2, the oppression of the leadership is condemned. Idolatry is condemned. Punchline, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. See, that should whiplash you. That should give you a major whiplash because we've got, a, we've got judgment promised in Israel. We've got judgment promised in Judah. We have the oppression condemned. We have idolatry highlighted, pointed out, and condemned. And yet in the midst of this, we have what? What have we continually seen in the prophetic writings? We have the promise of future redemption, that in the midst of this, God will accomplish all that he has promised. That's why Micah 3, the leadership is renounced. Why? Because the leadership should know better. They should have been removing the high places. They should have been engaged in proper sacrifice. They should have been engaged in the festivals. They should have been leading the people rightly. Headship matters. Who you follow around matters. And then again, though, excuse me, you whiplash. Why? Chapter 4, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Precisely long-suffering and the accomplisher. The last days is God's reign. When man's kingdoms, as Psalm 2 talks about, are put down and the son's kingdom is raised up. What we have is a reminder that humans, you're going to answer to God. Idolater, you're going to answer to God. He will not allow you to escape the realities of humanity. He has created you. He has upheld you. Therefore, you will answer to him and to him alone. You will either answer as his faithful child, trusting in his grace and mercy. You will answer to him in salvation or you will answer for your sin and you will answer in judgment. And God is faithful to bring about both of these things. Notice how we can literally walk through our foundations and understand the whiplashing answers. The prophets are not schizophrenic. The prophets are reminding the people about God's work. When is Israel truly and really established? They're promised to Abraham, but they're not established. They're promised to Isaac, but they're not established. They're promised to Jacob, but they're not established. They're established in the Exodus. A people overcome by the world, overcome by evil, redeemed by God, and set about upon his good land that he has given to them. Chapter 5, back to Micah. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me who to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Hmm. Who does that sound like? Does that sound like somebody who might be able to fulfill the promise of a king to rule forever from the line of David? Methinks it does sound a little bit like that fulfillment. We've been given some more information that that Shiloh from the tribe of Judah will come down from the line of David, will be God in Bethlehem. That's cool. 
That's very cool. That's why the New Testament testimony matters so much about Christ's birth, about the fulfillments of the prophecy. Because again, in the midst of this judgment oracle, God promises salvation. Move to chapter 6, the part we all know, right? Micah 6 is the thing everybody knows. What shall I come to the Lord? Bow myself before the God on high. Shall I come with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, that's what you should be doing. You're not doing that. Therefore, God will judge you. That means there's no hope, right? I can't be good enough. Chapter 7. As for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me and my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. In other words, should we have engaged in the festivals? Yes. Because God has promised them to us, God has commanded them to us, and we love God and worship God and serve God because he has redeemed us. Therefore, we worship and serve the way he has commanded. Therefore, you should have done justice and loved kindness by engaging in the worship that God commanded you. You didn't engage in that worship because you didn't love God. You didn't care about him. You didn't worry about it. Therefore, you didn't do it. The symptom is the lack of the festival. The disease is the heart in the sin that has overcome it. That's the problem. Not doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly is the same thing as not attending to the Passover, not attending to the Feast of Weeks, not attending to the sacrifices of the temple. They're all the same problem. They, res- they reveal the same heart condition, which is one of selfish idolatry. Let's continue, because we just hammered Israel and Judah, right? Nehom. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he rescue and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. This is to Nineveh. You're going, but didn't we just do Jonah where Nineveh repented? Yeah. Realize Jonah's early 8th century, so first half of the 8th century, somewhere in that 890 to 860 range. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nahum is middle to late 7th century, so 650 and on. It's been over 100 years since Jonah. What did Nineveh do? Nineveh went right back to who and what it was. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop, but no one turns back. Why are they fleeing? Because the one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. In other words, Nineveh will be destroyed because God will destroy Nineveh. Why? Because of sin. You think God is going to allow you, Assyrian, to be the instrument of his judgment and because of that overlook your sin? May it never be. Instead, because you have been used mightily by God to accomplish all that he has promised, you will not be held to a lesser standard. You will be held to a higher standard. 
Therefore, your sin and your iniquity, which you have done in destroying Israel, which you have done in making war against Judah, and the iniquity that you have brought forth upon the nations, will be handled by God. Punchline of the book. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has your evil, on whom has, your, has not your evil passed continually? In other words, it's almost like Nineveh, you will be without excuse because you knew what was good and right. You repented when confronted with your iniquity, and then you went back and wallowed in the filth anyway. Therefore, who will stand for you? And the answer is no one. You will be gone. That's an important lesson to remember. This is an important lesson, Christian, that you have to remember about history. That we look at history too often from a myop, from a myopic lens. You say from a myopic lens. You say that three times fast. I dare you. And what I mean by that is we look at it like it's all about us. It isn't. It's about God. Remember, he is the creator. He is the preserver. We are dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon us. Therefore, as we look at history, we should be looking at it through the lens of what God is doing and how this is building his kingdom. What are the lessons? What are the things that should be understood and accomplished in light of what we are seeing and what we are doing? This is part of this example of this is why Nahum is in your Bible. This is why this matters. What's going to happen? God's going to win. But, 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 God's going to win. Now apply that to the next book, Habakkuk. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Cause me to look on wickedness. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Your law is ignored. Justice is not upheld. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice comes out perverted. Ow. God's response, Chaldeans are coming. Chaldeans are coming. The Babylonians. Because we are now end of the 7th century. The Babylonians have overtaken the Assyrians as numero uno on the world stage. They are going to be the instrument of God's judgment. And Habakkuk is looking around Judah and going, Man, this is evil. God, why are you allowing? God's answer is, I'm not. I'm going to deal with it in my time. And I'm going to deal with it in my way. Lesson from history that we covered in the book of Kings. The Assyrians would have destroyed the promise of Bethlehem in Micah 5. They would have destroyed the promise of God to David in 2 Samuel 7. They would have destroyed the prophecy given by Jacob to Judah in Genesis 49. All of that would have been gone if the Assyrians had been allowed, because we wouldn't have had an Israel. We wouldn't have had a line of David. We wouldn't have had a Bethlehem. We'd have had something else. Therefore, God, in his precision and in his faithfulness, does not allow the Assyrians to prosper. He judges their sin at the right time. And he'll use the Babylonians. And Habakkuk rightly questions, huh? They're worse than us. Oh, are they now? Are they truthfully worse than you? Because this is the fault we fall into. This is the question that we always get. And if you'll really pay attention and have some fun, I won't read all of it to you, but go, go read all of Habakkuk too, because it's God's answer. And God's answer is not, no, the Babylonians aren't any worse than you, and you're, the, you're just as evil. The answer is, basically, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? Sin is sin. And if, I mean, was Israel perfect? No. They sinned against God in the wilderness. They sinned against God at Mount Sinai. They sinned against God with the manna. They sinned against God with the waters. They sinned against God in Egypt. They sinned against God with the commandments. They forsook the covenant. They did all of this. And yet they were the instrument of God's wrath upon the Canaanite. They were the instrument of God's judgment upon the lands that he had promised to them. Welcome to Babylon. That's why Habakkuk can listen. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And then a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is why having your foundation about who you follow and why you follow is so vitally important. If you do not get that anchor correct, you will think of the wrath of God as if it were your own. Christian. Don't do that. Don't think of the wrath of God as some wild, uncontrolled thing. The Assyrians were used as the wrath of God against Israel. Now, while the Assyrians may have been some wild, uncontrollable, uncontrolled thing, God's wrath wasn't. The Assyrians conquered what God allowed them to conquer, and no more. They went down to Jerusalem, and they were turned back by his angel. The Babylonians may seem like Wild men bent on destruction and corruption of everything. But God's wrath is not. Therefore, they will conquer and destroy what God will allow. And nothing more. They will be set aside by the Persians. Nations will rise. Nations will fall. God will reign eternal. Zephaniah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with, along with the priests, those who bow down to the housetops, to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by milkhorn. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have, sought, who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. In other words, God will judge sin. You're going, so Zephaniah is kind of starting off the same way everybody else is. Yep. Zephaniah is basically the uh, forerunner of Habakkuk. He is right before Habakkuk. At this point, Israel's gone. You're talking about late 7th century, to be honest with you. By the time of Habakkuk and Zephaniah, the northern kingdom of Israel has been gone for almost 100 years. That's a long time. And you could argue that by the time of Habakkuk, Israel's been gone for over a hundred years. A century of the Assyrians and the Babylonians on your northern border. A century of the witness of the destruction of the people of Israel. A century of every other nation coming in, going out, the loss of the tribes, the loss of the brethren. A century of the cities of the Levites being even more corrupted than they already were. A century of there being no testimony to Yahweh in these places. A century. And Judah doesn't repent. Judah doesn't turn back. Judah doesn't walk as they are supposed to. The other part of this is 
if you're ti- depending on how you time this out, Zephaniah and Habakkuk's ministry occurs during the reign of Josiah. He's one of the good ones. He's one of the good ones, one of the best ones. And yet, the people engage in idolatry. The people walk away. Humanity continues in all that she has done. So you get to Zephaniah 2. We're going to judge Judah in chapter 1, right? Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame. Before the decrees take effects, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. In other words, judgment is also going to come upon who? Everybody else. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Karathites, the sea coast, the pasture lands, Moab, Ammon, Gomorrah, you name it, Ethiopia, Assyria, Nineveh. Everybody is going to get torn down. Why? Because everybody has forsaken Yahweh. Everybody has walked in the demonic worship of idols. Everybody has turned aside. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, the wrath of God will abide upon everybody. Chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem who knew better. See, it's bad enough when the Ninevites do it. It's bad enough when the Babylonians do it. You knew better. That's why Habakkuk can end in praise of God, because he recognizes, you know what, God? You're right. We know better, and we have not done it. And by the way, historical note on Habakkuk, he's stationed on the city wall waiting for the Babylonians to come in, which means when they do come in, he's going to die first. He's going to die first. And his answer is, I will wait, and I will trust, and I will see, and I will be secure. Zephaniah 3 ends in a similar manner. Well, it doesn't end, but it's in the middle of the chapter. I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies. Nor will, de- nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. That's the place where we will leave it today because that's the place where Habakkuk is stationed on his wall. That's the place where Nahum finishes up with a completed judgment, trusting in God, because that's also the place where Micah finishes up. See, Jonah's hatred didn't allow him to finish there. If it did, he would have been able to rejoice. Where does Joel finish up? With the day of the Lord, the coming of his kingdom. Where do all of these prophets finish up? with the mercy, grace, and accomplishment of God. Why? Because that's who he is. That's what matters. Now, keep in mind, Habakkuk's going to die first. Isaiah is going to be killed by Manasseh. Jeremiah was mistreated his entire life. Jonah is just a miserable sack of humanity. 
Zephaniah and Nahum are warning you to go flee somewhere and you might be protected. Most of these guys don't end well. And yet they're what? They're faithful. Why? Because they're looking forward to something better. This is where you should know your Hebrews 11. That whole list of men upon of whom the world is not worthy, that's why that matters. What changed them? The hope of things longed for. The trust in things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. Noah wasn't better. Noah trusted God. Abraham wasn't better, but when given the promise, trusted God. Jacob wasn't good, but when given the promise, he trusted God. Same with Joseph, same with David, same with all of them. They're not good, but they trust in God. They know that they are dependent upon him. They know that he is their redeemer. They know that he will be faithful to all that he has promised, and he will bring about all that he has said that he will do, and he will complete the task. And part of that task is making me what I should be and am not, sanctifying me and bringing me to a day of completion. I can't, but he can. The message of the prophets is God saves his people. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of his judgment, in the midst of all that is going on in this world, God saves his people. That's the lesson of Scripture. That's the lesson of the prophets. And that's something, Christian, that we need to be remembering day in and day out. Because if we don't, we're going to not only just be depressed, but we're going to be useless. Because we will have forgotten how we walk and why we walk. We walk because of his power. And we accomplish because of what he is doing. So what have we learned here today, children? God will judge sinners. God will redeem sinners. And we must walk faithfully in between. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you have questions about anything, send them. If you have stories you want us to look at as we do all of our fun stuff, send them. Um, I always point you to the resources, especially now because reading. Read your Bible, right? I always say it. Why does that matter? We have a reading plan on there help you kind of get into the habit if you are out of the habit, if you have just never been able to answer questions, not an exhaustive concordance or um, the word just went right out of my head for what I'm looking for. I hate when that happens, and it happens to me way too often. Um, the books written about the Bible that we use, commentary, oh my goodness, there you go. Not an exhaustive commentary on Scripture, but just enough to give you enough knowledge that you're dangerous to keep you on track so that if you're not understanding something, to hopefully shine a little bit of light to keep you moving in the right direction. So I encourage you to, to do that if you want to start reading some things or getting yourself geared up for Thanksgiving or Christmas and then kind of dive in in January. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, if you got kids going back to school and you want to use a school calendar, I highly recommend it as well to kind of get, keep them on track, keep them caught up, allow you to kind of make your way through things and not get bogged down in the details. So I recommend that to you. I also recommend this. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.